Okay, church. Do you have your thinking caps on? Everybody come in with their thinking cap on? Okay. 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 Scott, tell your brain, brain, I need you to work. And that is the truth. We need God to turn our brains on because our topic today is love. And I think, um, honestly, I think the kids have a stronger grasp of love than we do uh, because they haven't experienced the painful side of love, right? I mean, our, our, our sermon today, the title of our sermon is What is Love, right? And we based all of these sermons uh, in our series on song titles. So what is love? What's the, what's the words right after that? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Wow. Great job, guys. I wasn't expecting the whole thing. That's great. Thank you, guys. You're hired. But that's how we think about love. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Right there in one song lyric, we have love and hurt right there together. And that's one of the reasons we want to spend these next several weeks talking about love. Because love hurts when it's done wrong. But love can do some amazing things when it's done right. And we're going to be talking about a man, a man named Saul, and how he experienced love and how love drastically changed him. So we, we find Saul of Tarsus, he's, he's walking along a dusty road on, on the way to Damascus, and he is stopped in his tracks by a blinding light from heaven. And what, what had happened is this mission to go to Damascus and rid the world of this sect of people that follow this, this thing called the way had drastically changed. He had, he had been knocked to the ground by this bright, overwhelming light. And we find Saul reeling on his knees, feeling around in the dirt, shielding his eyes from this blinding light. And as he's trying to, trying to figure out whether he can see or not, whether he's been blinded or not, he hears a voice from heaven. And this voice completely changed the trajectory of Saul's life. This voice was inviting Saul into a different calling than any other calling he'd ever pursued before. You see, Saul had been a part of a religious group called the Pharisees. And as a Pharisee, Saul was committed to the Torah, the law of God. He had been trained up by one of the most respected and well-known rabbis of the day, Gamaliel. And he could spend, Saul could spend countless hours. He liked spending countless hours pouring over scripture. He knew every jot and every tittle. As a Jewish rabbi himself, he was devoted. He committed his life to debating the law, even debating the Mishnah, which was the oral tradition of the Jewish people. And it brought him great joy and satisfaction to do those things. Saul was committed to God so committed that he was willing to round up anyone who threatened God's people, the Jews. And this included those who followed the way. Those who were teaching that another rabbi, a rabbi named Jesus, was the Messiah and even was the son of God. Saul wanted to crush these new believers because he believed they were perverting the law of God. Let me tell you what was dangerous 
about Saul's way of thinking. Saul was absolutely convinced that he was pleasing the Lord in the way that he hated his enemies. I'm going to say that again for this side of the room. Saul was absolutely convinced that he was pleasing the Lord in the way in which he hated his enemies, in the way in which he hated and pursued and persecuted those who believed differently than he did. I feel like we may have witnessed some of that going on over the last several weeks. Saul was convinced that his high calling as a Jewish rabbi was hate. Because his intent was to go and arrest and kill those who followed the way in the name of Yahweh. That was where he was going, and that's what his intent was. But the voice from heaven changed all of that. The voice he heard was the voice of Jesus himself, and the, and the voice of Jesus changed everything. The voice of Jesus tore through who Saul was like a hurricane, tore through him so much so that after this experience with, with Jesus there on the road to Damascus, his name was even changed from Saul to Paul. And after this encounter with the Son of God, with Jesus, Paul would spend the rest of his life living in response to the voice of Jesus. Instead of seeking to imprison Christians, he would spend much of his life in prison proclaiming Jesus. Instead of threatening the followers of the way, Paul would spend most of his life being threatened, being spat upon, being stoned, being flogged, being beaten, being shipwrecked and insulted, all in response to what he encountered on the road to Damascus, all because of what he heard Jesus say to him. I believe Paul had found the more excellent way. He had learned and experienced what it was like to be loved even when you were wrong. Think about that. Loved even when you were wrong. Because if if God loved Saul the way Saul thought he was pleasing God, God would have crushed Saul on the road to Damascus. Do you realize that? Because Saul thought, I'm pleasing God by, by going and persecuting and trying to kill off those who are teaching what I think is wrong. Those who are teaching that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus is the Son of God, that is wrong. And I'm going to please God by going and crushing those who are an enemy of God. When in reality, what we'll find out is that Saul was the one that was wrong in the way he was trying to please his father in heaven. But if God would have dealt with Saul the way Saul was wanting to deal with his enemies, he'd have been crushed. But instead, he was loved. Instead, Saul was offered love and compassion, and it changed him. It changed who he was, and it changed the trajectory of his life. 
And from that moment forward, he lived his life in response to that love. That love had transformed who he was. And he spent the rest of his life showing the world, showing even you and me what love really is. Because that's what we were trying to answer today. What is love? And that, that's the question that we're, we're asking ourselves. That's the question that we really want to know. And we're going to spend the rest of the day looking to the Apostle Paul to give us an idea what really love is. Because I want to submit to you today that, that the world has no real concept of what, looks like, what love looks like. But even though the world doesn't have a really clear concept of what love looks like, the world is very quick, very quick to give us ideas and images of what, they, what the world thinks love should look like, what the world thinks love should do. We get all sorts of images that hint at what real love is, but unfortunately so often fall short. We are constantly bombarded with half-truths, partial truths that, that help to convince us and change our ideas about love. I think we all know and understand that if you if you wrap a lie in candy coating, people are often willing to receive it. And many times that's what happens to us. The world takes a, a lie about love and wraps it in a candy coating of feelings. Let me say that again. The world takes a lie about what love really should be, wraps it in a candy coating feelings. If you take this, if you believe this, you'll feel good. And we swallow it down and it begins to distort and transform not only us, but as we are changed, our society is, is uh, impacted as well. Where do we turn? That's another question we need to answer. Where do we turn when we're looking for love in all the wrong places? When love bites, when you, when you want to know what love is, when you feel like you can't stop falling in love, when you feel like you're never going to love again. Uh, Rick told me those are all song titles. Is that right? Those are all song titles? Okay, I'm not a really big music guy, but that's what he said. Those are all song titles. See, our world loves to give us advice about what love is through music, through movies, through blogs, through, through silly little tests on social media. And it can get really confusing. See, what, what the world does is it takes things like love is about feelings. Walk away when you don't feel that you love somebody anymore. Love is about me first. Or only love those who love you back. Love is, is about thinking the same way. If, if you're really in love, you won't disagree. P people who are in love never fight. Love should always be easy. See, those are those lies that the world offers us that are wrapped in a candy coating of feeling. Those are the lies that the world is trying to get us to, to take in and allow to change who we are and what we're called to do. So this morning, what I want us to do is hopefully catch a glimpse of what, of what real love is. And again, I, again as a, as a as both as a, as a Christian, but also as a pastor, I feel responsible that we should be using the Bible as our backdrop. Because this, this whole book, this whole book is, is about God's love for you and me and those that we disagree with. That's what this whole book 
is about. It, it gives us a clear picture of what love is. And so today we're going to be sticking with, with the Apostle Paul and kind of examining this, this beautiful picture of love that he paints for us. And we're going to be looking in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, specifically the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, uh, later on in the year, we're going to be doing a series through the whole book of 1 Corinthians. But for today, we're just going to be focusing on, on this one chapter. And 1 Corinthians 13 is often re- referred to as the love chapter. This is the scripture, this is the section of scripture that is often read at weddings. Maybe it was read at your wedding. I know as a pastor, I've read it at at many weddings. But I want to be straightforward with you that this section of scripture, though it is called the love chapter, it is in no way addressing marriage. Now, I want to be clear, it applies to marriage. But when Paul was writing this, he wasn't giving us marriage advice. In fact, he was giving us life advice. Because these, these teachings on love don't just apply to your marital relationship. They actually should apply to all relationships. So as I read part of the scripture, I want to I encourage you, I want to challenge you really uh, to do your best not to limit the scope of this teaching on marriage to your spouse uh, or to someone that you care about. I want you to, to expand it to all relationships that you encounter from the person at the grocery store uh, to those that you love the deepest. We, we want to expand it to all of those relationships. So when Paul is writing this, this letter, uh, he's writing it to the church of Corinth, the church of Corinth that he actually founded. And at this time, that church was probably pretty small, around uh, 40, 50 people. Uh, and we're going to get to peek into some of the affairs that were going on uh, in this church, the inner workings of the church. And this letter is kind of a, a good news, bad news type letter. Uh, there's a, a kind of a sense in this letter of, of, of Paul as the father figure scolding his children, uh, the, the church that he started. And so here's the good news. Paul states up front in his letter to the church of Corinth that God has blessed them. God has given them spiritual gifts that are alive and active in their church. Uh, Jesus is going to return soon. God will give them the power to stand firm against hardships and persecutions and that God is committed to being faithful to them. All good news. Great way to start the letter. But then comes the bad news. And the bad news is for this church must have hit them uh, like a punch to the gut. This letter would have been read before the body. It had been read almost like a, like a sermon. And in fact, uh, as we read this this next section, the bad news part, uh, it should come against any idea that you have that that love is kind of soft and syrupy and and sugary and fluffy, that the love is just this feel-good feeling. Because you're not going to get that sense from what Paul is talking about. In fact, if you go back and read the first 12 chapters, uh, he is ripping into this church that he loves and putting it before their face all the things that they are doing wrong. In this part of the letter, the bad news part, uh, he addresses division among believers and he calls them to unity. Uh, He condemns an illicit affair that is taking place in this church under the nose of all those in leadership. Uh, He hears of lawsuits among believers and he condemns them for that. He condemns the sexual immorality that's taking place within the church. Uh, He points out that, that worship is out of order and that communion and spiritual gifts are being abused. This church has some conflict, okay? In fact, it later in his letter in, 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 in chapter 15, this is what, what Paul says to this church. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Come to a sober and right mind and sin no more. For some have no knowledge of God. 
I say this to your shame. And can I just tell you, Paul didn't say that because he doesn't love Corinth. He said that because he does love Corinth. He is harsh and it comes across harsh, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't love this church. In fact, what Paul said and what Paul did was the most loving thing he could do for that church because love seeks the best for others. When someone is off track, when someone is moving in a trajectory away from God, when someone is clearly committed to rebellion, the most loving thing we can do is stand in the way and say, stop, you're wrong. You're going down a path that's gonna lead to pain, that's gonna hurt you. That's the most loving thing that we can do. But we can only do that in the proper context. We can only do that if we have a deep understanding that we too at one time were enemies of God. That we at one time were committed to a life of rebellion and God didn't crush us. But instead wanted the best for us and therefore loved us to the point that we might hopefully change. Paul is reminding the church that they are set apart and they should be living differently. So what I wanna do, I wanna read through some of the teachings there in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and just share with you some insights of what Paul is trying to communicate to this church. He says there at the beginning, I will show you still a more excellent way. I think Paul is speaking from experience. I think Paul had so much more freedom when he lived through a trajectory of love than he did living through a trajectory of hate. He goes on to say, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and angels, but do not have love, I'm like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, if I have prophetic powers and I understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, if I hand over my body so that, if I hand over my body so that I, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Pretty bold words. You gain nothing without love. See, that's what, that's what Paul is really addressing here to this church because what was going on is spiritual gifts began to stir up in this church. Uh, individuals would stand up and say, I, I, I speak in tongues, so I'm better than you. I, I, you know, I, I have the gift of prophecy, so I'm more important than you. Excuse me, I need to move to the front of this potluck line. Excuse me, excuse me. And Paul is saying, you can have all those gifts, you can do all of those great things, but if you do not have love, you gain nothing. Nothing. I think Paul is trying to open our eyes to how important love is. Then he goes on to say, love is patient and love is kind. And I think, again, he's reminding us that love doesn't create an instantaneous change always. And that many times we're gonna have to follow the example of, of Jesus whose kindness led us to repentance. Many times we think, man, if I could just chew this person out really good one time, they would come to a loving, faithful relationship with Jesus. If I just chewed them out one good time. If I could kind of come up with the, with the meanest, harshest Facebook post and put that on the wall, surely they would realize how loving Jesus is. That's what we do. But we thank the good Lord that his kindness 
was what led to our repentance. I think we need to, again, learn that that's the, that's the method that we are called to follow. Through kindness, lead others to repentance as well. Now, you might be scratching your head and say, whoa, 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 Charlie, how much kindness? How much patience? Well, I'll be honest with you, I have no idea. But it's probably more than you think. Because God probably had to offer you a whole lot more patience than you thought to. And that's a, that's a good thing to reflect on. You needed a lot of patience. So maybe offer to someone else the same amount of patience that you believe God offered you. And it says, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not assist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. It, it does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Again, I think God shared that through Paul because he knows how frustrating it is to love someone. It's easy to get resentful. It is easy to get frustrated. It is easy to get impatient. But love endures. It says love rejoices in the truth. It rejoices in sharing the truth with someone. It doesn't lament and like groan under this, this pressure. Oh, I gotta tell somebody that God loves them. It doesn't do that. It rejoices that you have a truth to share with someone that might change the trajectory of their life. This is the hardest one, I think. Love, it bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. I think that one's the hardest because it pushes so much against our nature. What we say is, what we say is, if you change, I will love you. That's what we say. If you change, then I'll love you. But God says his love will endure even if we don't change. His love will endure. It will be patient. It will wait in the hopes that we do change because God's love seeks the best for us and we are called to seek the best for one another. He goes on to say, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put away childish things for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I will only see in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These things are the greatest, but the greatest of these is love. Again, the thing that it's gonna endure into eternity. Hope is gonna pass away because we're not gonna have a need for hope anymore because Jesus is gonna be standing right there. Faith is gonna be unnecessary because Jesus, again, is gonna be standing right there. But love will endure for all eternity. I just, as we, as uh, Rick and I were working on this sermon, I, I, we were both trying to think of what does this really look like? You know, we, we talked about what love is, but what does it really look like? And, and sometimes it looks like what, what Paul encountered where he was marching towards Damascus with hatred in his heart, thinking he was gonna please God by crushing this, this sect that he saw as rebellious and dangerous for, for those who, who believed in the Jewish God. Sometimes it's dramatic like that, but sometimes it's simple. Let me just tell you my story of how I encountered this life-changing love. Several years ago, uh, you might remember uh, back in, I believe it was February, our, our daughter, uh, Kara, uh, was diagnosed with congenital glaucoma. And we were going to have to fit, find a doctor, and we were looking at surgery, and, and we were driving to Dallas, and we are figuring all that out. Well, we, we were in the midst of all that, and then we also realized that we really wanted to be a part of this community I was commuting from Amarillo to Canyon, and so we had this broad idea to, to put our house on the market uh, in March, I think it was, and it sold, uh, which you'd think would be a great thing, but in my mind, I was like, oh, no, because I didn't have a house here. 
And so we found a house here that we were gonna be able to rent for a while and we decided, hey, we're gonna save money and we're gonna move ourselves. Don't do that, okay? It's worth every dollar. But I'm loading up, I'm borrowing the church van and the trailer and I'm you know, throwing stuff into the trailer and Christine's taking care of the kids and I'm driving back and forth and just throwing stuff into the house and, and I'm just rushing along and I have all this stress on my shoulders of Kara's eye and how are we gonna pay for that and is she gonna be okay? And you know, we're renting this house, but where are we gonna live? Are we gonna be able to find a house? Are we gonna be able to afford a house? And I hear a bing bong on my door. And again, we hadn't even moved in yet. And standing at the door was the sweetest lady named Susan, my next door neighbor. And in her hands was a, was a pan of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. And she just smiled when I opened the door and I'm like sweats dripping down. I'm like, I don't want any. I thought it was a salesman, you know. And she, she just extends that plate of chocolate chip cookies. She said, hey, my name is Susan. Me and my husband, we live next door. I just wanted to, we saw you moving in. Just want to say welcome. So glad that you guys are a part of our community in our street. And over here, uh, you know, that's Jody and Michelle. And right here next door, that's your other neighbors. That's so-and-so. And, and down the street is so-and-so. And, and here's so-and-so. We just wanted you to feel welcome. I could have cried right there on the porch. It was a little thing. Because what I knew is Susan wasn't there for Susan. She was, she was there to seek what was best for me. She wanted me and my family to feel welcome. It had nothing to do with her. It was not, her love was not self-seeking. She loved me before she ever met me. In church, we have the power to offer that love to others, even those that we disagree with. And we're gonna be talking about that next week uh, in our sermon, Love Hurts. We're gonna be talking about loving our enemies, so come back for that one. But I wanna invite the worship team to come back up. And we're going to sing a closing song. And, and I wasn't in this service last week, but I know that Kayla, she, she had an opportunity to invite people to come forward and, and pray. And I know some of you may have done that, but I know there might have also been some of you who said, I know I need to, but I'm really not going to. I'm not going up there. People are going to know I need help. People are going to know that Jesus is dealing with me. So I just want to give you a second chance. We're going to do that again today. The altar is open. But I also know that there are some of you here who may have realized today that you've been more like Saul than you have Paul. You've thought by hating somebody that you think disagrees with God or hating somebody that you find to be maybe an enemy of God was really pleasing to God. And maybe for the first time today, God is saying, I really want you to love them. And loving them doesn't mean agreeing with them. Loving them doesn't even mean being their friend. Loving them means seeking the best for them. And the, the very best for them is that they might encounter Jesus Christ. And so if you need to repent and ask God for help to love those that you found it easier to hate. Uh, the altar is open as well. Or if you just really need prayer for anything, I'll be up here. And I see Rick at the back, so I'm going to invite him to come up here. And we'll just be available to pray for you during this closing song. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Help us, Jesus. Help us to trust that in this moment, whatever you're calling us to do, you're doing because you're seeking our best. Because you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.